Welcome to OsteoTalk, an Osteopathy Australia podcast dedicated to delivering clinically relevant education for osteopaths to learn, connect and collaborate by drawing on a wealth of knowledge seen in practice as well as experts in other disciplines. Join us as we explore real clinical issues through interviews and discussion with top practitioners in Australia and internationally. For more learning and development resources, visit our website at www.osteopathy.org.au. Welcome to the OsteoTalk podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by osteopath and educator, Dr. Grant Burrows. Grant graduated as an osteopath in 2000 and currently works in private practice in Geelong, Victoria. He developed a particular interest in functional movement and chronic pain, which led him to extensive study overseas. Today, we discuss aligning patient outcomes with practitioner development and the challenges faced by osteopaths and our profession as a whole. It is these challenges that has inspired Grant to embark on a new journey with the development of ProMotion, a series of educational programs for osteopaths and practice leaders designed to help us create career momentum and a cohesive clinic culture. Welcome to the podcast, Grant. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Emily. It's great to be here. Can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and your career journey so far? Yeah, sure. I, uh, I went to VU way back in the, in the last century and uh, graduated in 2000. Uh, and since then, I've worked in private practice the whole time. Some of, the, some of that time has been part-time, but in some capacity, I've worked in practice that whole time. And, and also done a fair bit of stuff with uh, VU in the lecturing space and clinicians and space and, and some freelance education as well in the CPD area as well which I'm um, rejigging at the moment uh, and yeah I've done a lot of study overseas particular interest areas in that chronic pain and sort of movement or what's been known as functional movement space um, I've studied a lot over in America with that the Gray Institute uh, and also been front and center and early on with um, Butler Mosley stuff in 03 I first heard Laura talking about this new idea that pain mightn't be um, all somatic dysfunction in the muscle um, so yeah, they're probably my focus areas, but that, that, that they're the main areas I've been working in the last 20 years. Yeah. What, what inspired you to, um, to pursue those areas for further learning? Oh, I just felt that I always knew as, as I'm sure you did as well, or do, uh, that osteo treatment is, is really effective for a lot of conditions, musculoskeletal conditions. And I think I, I you know, you have evidence of that in the student clinic when you're pretty young, you know, but I, I also found there were quite a lot of conditions that didn't respond that well. And, and they were actually the ones that interested me. Maybe, that, maybe that's because I'm naturally um, <clears throat> negatively orientated that I, I sort of remembered rather <laughs> celebrate what a hero I was clearing a C5, one, a C5, C6 facet strain. I, was, I went home thinking about the ones that maybe didn't work out as well as I'd hoped. Uh, and, and, and that probably was what triggered me to look, there must be some more stuff out there that can explain this. And, and sure enough, there is. Yep. So Grant's embarking on a new project inspired by his many years of clinical experience. Can you tell us a little bit about ProMotion and why you've developed this? Yeah, sure. Um, look, ProMotion is, is sort of, it's a bit of a COVID baby really because I, I was already doing freelance education uh, prior to COVID hitting and it just, just gave us all a chance, didn't it? And probably too much of a chance in the end. But at the start, it gave us a chance to sit back and say, you know, what, what's working here? What's not working? And, and what do I want to do next? And so that was probably where it came from. 
to me, to try and break that down, it comes back to I'm not sure that what we thought was going to happen with the evidence-based era with this all this proliferation of new information, new research, new science, new understandings, I'm not sure it's had as much impact in clinical coalface as we thought it would. Uh, and I've studied extensively in the last decade in those areas I mentioned before. And so promotion is really about how do we move forward? How do we help practitioners move forward? How do we help practice leaders move their practitioner teams forward? Because I think that might be our next challenge. I think creating momentum for practitioners uh, and for practice uh, practices themselves, who obviously comprise of practitioners, it might be our next challenge, I reckon. I reckon 20 years ago, it was our greatest challenge was how can we create more evidence to prove ourselves to GPs and the medical fraternity about how much we know and how much we can prove, which is important. But I reckon right now it's about how do we translate all that stuff that we now know into career momentum and practice momentum for us at the coalface. Okay. So promotion will be an educational resource? Yeah, so we work workshops and, uh, and programs for probably practitioners, practitioners obviously, but probably even more so practitioner teams. So um, going into practices and helping practitioners um, to have a scientific foundation they understand, to create more opportunities for them to be autonomous in practice, to make more decisions, to not get dragged around the park by chronic pain patients, these sort of things, um, and give us more structure to um, just impose ourselves a little bit. I think we've lost a little bit of our ability to our presence almost in a clinical setting sometimes. And uh, I just want to help practitioners with that side of things. So there's a lot of confusion around at the moment about how we do that. And practice leaders have got the problem, obviously, of how do you motivate and develop your practitioners? I mean, it's a people business. You know, you're as a practice leader, you're investing your money in a practice basically on the performance of the people that work within it. Um, so that's an ongoing challenge, as you know, and as we all know. Uh, practice leaders have been saying the same things for the last 20 years I've heard you know, people leave and what people don't do this and they should do that and so yeah well you know that that probably that might be all true but what can we do to create better structures and frameworks for these people to develop and grow as opposed to just saying oh why do they leave or why won't they get their patients back you know it's a bit of a yeah it's a bit of a cheap cheap way of looking at it I think fantastic so what, what changes have you experienced in the osteopathic space over the last decade and what implications have they had? Well, I think one of the, one of the challenges and, and the thing we talk about in promotion, I talk about in promotion is practitioner squeeze. And practitioner squeeze is really about the things that make growth and development difficult for practitioners, that squeeze that sometimes feels like it's on us to, that we're sort of pushing, pushing against. And one of the things with that is that Patients now behave quite differently than the way they did, certainly when I started 20 years ago. Um, the, the patients are much better informed, aren't they, with the internet now and, and, with, and Dr. Yeah. Google and so on. They're, they're, they're much better informed about what they think is wrong with them. So patients are better informed and they're also osteos and now, and, and all musculoskeletal professions, I guess, but we're talking about osteo today. Osteos are a lot more common than they now. And so patient conditioning around around what they expect from treatment is a lot stronger than it was certainly when I started. So those two things, being better informed and being more conditioned, it, it takes some things off the table when a patient walks into you in practice. It takes a, quite a lot of things off the table because they're saying, well, this is what I expect. They're not saying this directly perhaps, but they're basically saying, this is what I expect from you. This is what worked in the past. I've been to five different per people. This person did that and I like needling and if you just crack it just here and it's just there and, you, and it's, it's all this sort of patients are far, but far more involved 
And I think it's taken away a little bit of our, our autonomy to come back to the promotion stuff. It's what, what we do is we, we try and align what patients want and help them define tightly what they want from treatment, what they expect from treatment, and then allow practitioners to go to work to serve that particular goal. That's a little bit different to saying, fix my pain. I know what's wrong with me. You fix it. There's a, there's a differentiator there. So that's changed. Um, what else has changed last decade? Uh, I think the, I think practice, practice leaders, because it's so much more competitive now, things have changed there where there's been a trend towards business coaches and stuff, which is not, obviously no problem with that, but um, a lot of metrics, a lot of quantitative data. Um, and I think that can be quite limiting on practitioners sometimes because while I understand it from a commercial point of view and business owners, practice owners need to be protecting their investment and they're the risk takers. So I'm very respectful of that. But I think there's an opportunity for practitioners to not be squeezed by, you know, must get your patients back, must get your patients back. And actually more about how are we going to better serve these people? They'll come back if they're happy. You know mm. what I mean? So it's actually switching the lens a bit. There. I think so. there's probably two things. Patients have changed a lot in the last decade public you and i have changed a lot in the last decade as well with the different influences around us um and i think practice leaders have often changed with the culture now much more around business coaching uh and and metrics and and data yeah that's a long-winded answer isn't it no 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 that's good and i've, I've just come up with a million other questions i want to ask in there or <laughs> a few other points i want to touch on so i'm i'm really interested in the the patient expectation aspect um I guess, do you, do you think from the outset we need to be asking a patient what they want to achieve from their treatment? Yes, I, I do. I do. I think the tricky thing with this and, and thing that certainly once again, one of the things that we uh, try and help with with the work we're doing in that promotion space is sometimes patients can't articulate what they want. So that they, they, they think that they want, they know they want certain things, like I want less pain, I don't like pain and so on. Um, but I think... It's also being able to dig a bit and find out what the other reasons are. So they might be social, emotional reasons. They might be just because they, I mean, you'd be the same. I have a certain subset of patients that fundamentally like me. There's lots of people who don't like me, by the way, I'm sure as well. There's a small <laughs> population who come and see me because they like me. They like having a chat. They like getting treatment and so on. But they probably wouldn't say that. They'd say it's because they're, I don't know, maintain their health or whatever it is. So that's that's one piece. Um being able to find the unarticulatable and be able to, be able to uh, ask about or be able to determine, determine that by what people are saying. Um, and I think the, the, the question that I like that sort of wraps this up really nicely, I reckon, is if you woke up tomorrow and your problem wasn't there, how would we know that we'd have success? Like how, how would we know that we've done well? You know, it might be, oh, well, I'd wake up tomorrow and I'd be able to go and do gardening or I'd better wake up tomorrow and I'd have no pain. And sometimes it is literally I don't want pain. No one wants pain. But just being able to tighten up a bit from, you know, where's your pain? What's it feel like? How long has it been there for? Which is all things we need to know, but it, it doesn't really put any pressure on the patients to tighten up what actually is it. I sometimes say to people, I've got pain here. What, why does that pain matter? And sometimes people mm. will not like that question at the outset because it feels a bit confronting, but it's, why does it matter? Like, no, I'm on yeah. pain, but what, what is it? What is it about that pain? So it's the implications of pain and the unarticulatable, I think, that, that are that are important here. And, and moving on, I think, just one last thing, I think being able to have more structure at the outset here of being able to tighten things up and define reality for the patient actually paradoxically or ironically gives us freedom as a practitioner later on. It's almost like we need to tighten up the front end to create yeah. the freedom later. Because if we, if we stay vague at the start, 
we get dragged down that same mm. path each time. So what what do you sort of mean by structure? Yeah. So I, I think you, in your in your head you've got a um, a diagnostic funnel almost that um, determines that you've got is it pain relief that you're after? Is it that experiential side of treatment? Um, is it obviously medical pathology, red flag stuff, you've got to get away, away from or refer on somewhere else? Or is it what we call pain implications where, yeah, pain's a problem, but it's the implications of that problem. It might be on mood, it might be on relationships, it might be on physical capacity to do stuff. But there's a big difference between working towards a goal that's around phys- the implications of pain and pain. So yes. if someone wants pain relief is a key word there. Relief is about in the moment, in the next half an hour treatment, while I'm at your practice, when I leave this practice, very momentary. So treatment's the best option for that. But I think the way you the way you structure up is you need to be able to be putting a bit of, I don't know if pressure's the right word, but a little bit back on the patient and saying, which bucket are you in, basically? And if it's experience-based treatment, relational stuff, I, th- I think that needs to be okay. Some would say that's not, you know, that I don't want to treat patients just because they like to come and talk to me. I need to need a a meaty clinical problem to get my teeth into for every patient. I'm, I'm not sure about that. I think that's a legitimate reason to receive treatment because it's experiential, social, emotional support, maintenance, whatever it is, pain relief, pain implications, red flags. They're the four that I use. And I, I think being able to put them in one or the other, I'm only treating as a, as a primary intervention. I'm only treating in pain relief as a primary. As pain implication, I'll treat within it, but there'll be lots of other stuff happening in the movement space. There'll be some perceptual shifts we're looking for. There'll be I'll be listening for metaphors about about why they the way they have imagery around their pain and themselves. I'll be looking for relational, emotional cues. Oh, there's all sorts of stuff about the implications depending on what it is. Um, whereas pain relief, I think we've got into this situation where it's it's basically pain relief in the moment. Unpacking all the other stuff in that, I don't know that we need we get to use it very effectively because it's mm. about how you walk out of the treatment. Do I, I went to see Emily? Do I feel better? Do I not? sort of that sort of mindset. Yeah. So that's the sort of structure I'm talking about when I'm talking about defining problems. And, and that might take on a different form, obviously, for other practitioners. That's what I, I promote. Um, but there'd be obviously lots of variations on that. Okay. Have you have you been strongly influenced by the biopsychosocial model that's become a lot more, I'm going to say prevalent now. It's it's always been around. I remember briefly hearing about it at uni, but it's I had no context for it in it made no sense at that time um but you know I, f- I feel like a lot of of what we do is now moving in that space what do you think about that yeah yeah definitely it, it, it is uh, i would i would say about the psychosocial or biopsychosocial approach or whatever we call it i'm with you when i first was exposed to that that didn't i didn't have a lot of i didn't really have uh, anywhere to put that i never any tight context to put that um I would say, or like a lot of this stuff that we're talking about today, Emily, I think it needs work. I think we need to actually um, be much tighter around the, the whole psychosocial. Well, yeah, okay, we're all psychosocial sort of creatures, and, and, and obviously, and I think it needs context. I think we need to tighten up in terms of the, the goals of what we're trying to do. Um, so, for example, example probably is, is better here, uh, that you look at the pain, the pain implications, you look at... Um, I want to be able to, who's a patient about the moment, I want to be able to, uh, I want to be able to run and I can't run because I've got this, this hip thing or whatever. Um, being really flat about not being able to stay fit, putting on some kilos, 
um, it, it, that's a psychosocial thing, isn't it? They want to be able to do stuff with their friends and so on. So it's about what, what are the things in that context? What are the perceptions they have of running? How can we get them running? Because if we understand neuroplasticity and we understand that there's often opportunities within running to do stuff, they can actually get their heart rate up. They can they might be able to run the same distance at the same cadence, at the same loading on the same surface and so on. But there'd be tweaks we can do to get them moving in that direction that starts to free up that momentum and starts to get them moving, sweating, running effectively. Um, but I think it's psychosocial there in that particular context of I want to be able to hang out with my friends, I want to be able to exercise and feel the endorphins as opposed to what was your childhood like? Did your mum and dad love you? And you know, it, it's that, that it, it, it gets really, that psychosocial stuff can get really, really broad. So I think I am influenced by it, but I'm, I'm more interested by how we can use it in practice that will actually change things for the better, both for, yeah. both for patients and for us. Because I, I think sometimes that psychosocial space for us as practitioners, it just doesn't quite land as, as we like, would like it to. And, I think that affects our experience as much as it affects the patients because mm. the patient's not even there for that, are they? They're there for the Well, yeah. The thing is, I mean, as osteopaths, I, I would say we're primarily manual therapists. Um, yep. or that's that's how we are trained. Yep. Um, and and adopting a, a really strong biopsychosocial approach <clears throat> is is probably not what our patients are going to be seeing us for. Like it's fantastic nope. to integrate it, but I I know if I had a patient come in with lower back pain and I didn't do any treatment and um, reassure them and educate them or whatnot. That person may very well not come back because yep. patients expect manual therapy when they see an osteopath. So I That's think- That's absolutely spot on. And I think you, you're hitting on one of the key reasons why to this point we've struggled a bit to implement a lot of the new insights, understandings and stuff that science that we now know. I think that's exactly right. And um and that's why I was saying a minute ago that I think it's important amongst many other things, but to be clear about if we're doing pain relief and the best way to deal with pain relief is manual therapy. Mm. So you, we should treat, but yeah. I think the key to that, and I hundred percent agree with what you're saying there, but the key to that though, is that if a patient is, has chosen pain relief, so to speak, as their goal, they can't throw in the other stuff about, well, well they can, but we're, we're, we're going to mm-hmm. challenge them on the, on, on, we can challenge them on the whole thing of, I'm going to, you're going to fix my pain. You're going to fix up my attitude. You're going to fix up my motivation down the track. Hang on a minute. We're, we're doing treatments to create pain relief. So I think that's yeah. where it comes back to, yeah, biopsychosocial is going to work better if there's different goalposts set up than pain relief. It's going to work pretty poorly if, if it's about a sensory change in a short space of time, for mm. sure. I think, yeah, yeah one, of the, one of the things I find really challenging is trying to, I guess, yeah, in, integrate you know, evidence-based practice with patient expectations. And then, you know, again, for example, of lower back pain, you know, you can go down the manual therapy track or you can say, oh, well, exercise is proven to be the most efficient. So that's what we're going to do. And then, oh, no, no, we're just going to have a chat. And that's so it's sort of, it's balancing what they want, what the evidence is showing, and then trying to fit all of this into one consultation. I find that very challenging I'm, as a I'm, practitioner. I mean, I'm glad to hear, and obviously we haven't spoken about this before before this podcast in any detail, but I'm glad to hear you say that because that is exactly that is exactly the point. I yep. think is it, is it a, this is the challenge that we've got. And I think I think it's our greatest challenge going yeah. forward from here is how do we find ways to um, yeah to do exactly what you just said to, yep. to find to find that balance between evidence and science because we we can't we can't just 
uh, there was an unfortunate time there where, and you, I would imagine you would have graduated by now that by then that it was, it was that evidence shows it doesn't matter what you treat as long as you treat or something along those lines. Mm. There's no specificity with treatment. Right? And yep. I was doing student clinic work. I was a clinician at the student clinic at the time and I was doing my head in because there was just, just an excuse to do some really poor treatment techniques because yep. you didn't have to worry about specificity anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but but it's a, that, that to me was an example of how um, we, we, we found that, that integration difficult because pain, movement and behaviour, which I consider to be our three key pillars in what we do in osteopathy, um, they're all intangible, messy, woolly, unpredictable, neurologically self-organizing they're all like that right but treatment's not treatment's Mm. actually specific and it it relies on skill level and there is good and bad there is right and wrong i believe uh, in terms of the way um techniques you use um so that's an example again of what you're talking about of yeah be specific with treatment the evidence says that pain is really um driven by the central nervous system movement is so unpredictable and wildly fluctuating that's true that's evidence but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter what you do when you treat so i think there's this mm. clarity we need this clarity we need to say this is my box here for this this is my box over here for this and let's bring them together but yeah i agree with what you're saying it's, that's that's that is the challenge yep. yeah and i think the other challenge is that we need to look at is is our place in the whole healthcare system a bit as well like i, I think we should be unashamedly musculoskeletal specialists and 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 all that comes with that so pain limitation is a huge uh, number and uh, problem in terms of uh, incidence and, and cost and so on i think we should be in that space that's what we do we deal with pain we deal with movement we deal with the behavior that is associated with those things we obviously do treatment which is important but i think um taking back our space as mm. as being specialists in that area i think is a really important challenge we, we should take on because I, i'm not one that Need, I don't think we should be going down the path of being overly medical and trying to, um, you know, prove ourselves to doctors or whatever. I, I think it's about mm. reclaiming our space, understanding there's been a huge explosion of evidence and science in the last 20 years or even 10 years in our pillars, in our space of pain movement and behaviour. And that's okay. And it's okay to have difficulty implementing it, implementing it because it, it's got, you know, it's got to be out of work for the public and there's all different dynamics and incentives to play off against each other. But I think reclaiming us, putting a stake in the ground on that area again and saying, this is what we do. And yes, we've got our challenges to integrate all the new stuff, but we've got to be up for it. We've got to be up for the fight because if we're not, I think we could, I think we might have some relevance issues going forward. Yep. Do you, do you think we're trying to be too much like other professions? Do you think we've lost the sort of the, the uniqueness of osteopathy? Well, that's, yeah, maybe. I, I haven't, uh, the last couple of years, I haven't been directly, I haven't seen many people to talk to them about that or, or see what's happening. But yeah, possibly. Is that your experience? You're, you're probably in that space a bit more uh, than me. I, I feel like at times I'm, I'm expected to, you know, be more like a physiotherapist in terms of, you know, rehabbing and, and maybe things that are a bit more out of my scope. But I, I feel like, yeah, those expectations is, is that we're going to cover all bases, whereas someone will see a physio and really just expect to get exercises, have rehab, have a short consultation, and, and they know what they're that that's what they're in for. But um, I feel like I'm. I think that's right. Expect uh, to be a bit that, of a, a jack of all trades. But I think that comes. I think that's probably right too, isn't it? But I think we, we probably need to. Uh, that's probably a reflection of of needing to 
grow or develop or expand our space, which can sometimes look like a jack of all trades. But um, I, I, I think my, my point of view on this and my perspective on this is that we need to be not so much a jack of all trades, but we need to be able to switch gears. And I think that that's different to me. It's one is that we're switching gears from let's go back to that you know, pain relief, pain implications or whatever it might be, whether the problem is defined as if you can tightly define that you can go deep with whatever deeper with whatever you want to do with that patient. If you understand the parameters, what you're working with. And then half an hour later, when you go 45 minutes, whatever list you work off, the next patient that comes in, you can go down a different rabbit hole a bit because you've, you've tightened it up a bit rather than everyone having an L5S1 facet strain, you actually create that variability. So I, I think it's being, uh, we need to look at it being, which is what I'm doing with promotion, is being more flexible and create more variability in our workflow. We, I, I consider that a little bit different to being a jack of all trades. I know what you mean, but I think mm. jack of all trades means we kind of give it a rub and we give a few exercises and we then we just counsel them for five minutes. And you know. yep. But I'm, t- I'm talking about being more targeted and being more context-driven. Mm. And that and that will then solve another problem, which I think we have, or challenge we have, which is variability. Is is saying, you know, not all back problems are the same by a long way, but it, but we do have the opportunity to treat them all the same, which will create a lot of repetition in the workflow. Yeah. So um, yes, I know. Yeah. So I think it's about having flexible skill sets without mm. without diluting what we do really well. To your point about osteo diluting themselves a bit or or. Mm. Um, losing their space. I think we're still, I reckon, the best treatment, manual treatment providers and we shouldn't ever give up that advantage, I wouldn't have thought. Yep. So talking about, I don't know if we've already sort of covered this or not, but I mean, yeah, what do you think the biggest obstacles to practitioner development are and 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 why why practitioners are potentially burning out and, and leaving practices or, or there's issues with, um, you know, associate retention? Yeah, I think it's it's a combination of confusion uh, and not so much confusion around walking into practice every day and, and not knowing what to do confusion. Um, more confusion about what what am I doing? What, what goal am I serving? Um, where am I going? Where is a pathway I'm able to go? Which is to your point about retention and, and burnout and so on. Um, so there's confusion. I think we, we need to look at creating a lot more clarity and getting science that, and research or whatever the word is, probably science is a word I prefer to use, science that is rock solid reliable, that helps us um, do more variable work, do more meaningful work, um, do do uh, be able to dig further with patients and be more specific. Science is not going to let us down. Not, you know, that, that, that's, that's, um, that's a big obstacle. The confusion piece needs to be addressed as one. Um, and I think the other obstacle is what we touched on at the start, that, uh, that, practitioners are being squeezed by a patient that now behaves differently than they than they did and by a practice culture through driven through competition and so on that is more around retention that is about development and mm. um i i do understand that by the way i think there's we need to be really making sure with all this stuff around integrating science into practice that we need to be aligning incentives of all parties, including practice leaders. I don't want this coming across as saying, oh no, practice leaders are getting business coaches and they're ruining the profession. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that that we need to be sensitive and respectful that the incentives need to work for practice owners as well. I actually had a um, few years back, I had a a session I did uh, for a practice in Melbourne, there were a couple of sites. And my brief was to undo the pain science work that, that the practitioners were doing 
because they were torching their patient list by what you said before, just trying yeah. to counsel people and mm. all the rest of it, and it was killing their patient list. So yeah, um, I think being being able to um, uh, understand that patients are different and practice leaders are now running their businesses differently as well, particularly in a group practice setting, but we need to find a way to align the incentives of all parties concerned, otherwise it won't make it. That they're probably the two obstacles that I'm, I'm chipping away. They're the two yeah. obstacles that are front of mind for me is how do we align some incentives for all parties and how do we create clarity where currently there's confusion? Yep. And I think, yeah, certainly understanding you know, just the patient's expectations, but, um, you know, you might have somebody present and you can say to them, well, this is how we're going to manage it because this is what the evidence shows is the most effective. And if that is not what the patient wants, then you will not retain that patient. So yeah, it's really, it's, it's just integrating everything and putting it in the context of the patient. Absolutely. Mm. And I think that the research stuff, I mean, and I usually, uh, it's unpopular thing to say in, in certain areas, but I, I don't, I actually don't think right now, osteopathy 2021, I don't, or 2022, I, I don't think we need more research right now at number one. Mm. I, I think yeah. we, we've got plenty <clears throat> of it. And what we need is to say, righto, how are we going to, to what you just said a moment ago, how do we get this, all this stuff, right? And there's heaps of it. Mm-hmm. How do we get it to fit patient context in a way? Because if you don't fit patient context, they pay the bills. That's not going to work for anyone. Um, so, but yet you, we've got to make it work for us. And I think when you, when you, when you talk about this stuff, when your mates ask you, like, what are you doing next year? And I tell them about prim- work I'm doing in promotion and what, and what um, problems it helps solve for practice leaders and practitioners. Most people are just, they just look at you with a mix of boredom and confusion and uh, the public, the public are pretty happy. Most people out there, they've got their osteo. Yeah. Most yeah. of them, happen. some, some, some of them are getting the results they want, but they'll go and find someone else. Not a big deal. When you talk to practitioners about this and you talk to practice leaders about this, not all of them, but a lot of them, they go, yes, yes. Yeah. That, that is, that is what we need. That, yeah, that, and it's yeah. like, so this is a, this is far more of a, the patients are all relatively happy. Um, and I'm not saying osteos are sad, but I'm just saying the problem, <laughs> is, the, the, the problem is far more acute for us than it is them. So. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. like, how, yeah. How can we make our days in our working life? Um, yeah. Less, less stressful, more enjoyable. Yeah. And, and more aligned with what we what we know to be true and what makes sense to us, because I think what, what you know one option you can have is you just ignore all the science and the new uh, research didn't land, just just throw it away, and just go back to what you're doing. But that's going to be problematic, and 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 certainly with the millennials coming through now, who who need to you need to do better than that. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And if you're a practice yep. leader with a bunch of young practitioners in your practice, telling them to go back to just doing what you do every half an hour, it's not going to go that well. Yeah. Um, and definitely creating a you know happier, more cohesive work culture as well. Um, and that's and that's exactly right too. And one, one, some of the stuff I'm doing with as well with the practice leaders is or practices is that culture stuff. I think culture is a and, and I think it's why you brought up that word. Culture is a product of what happens day in day out in your practice. And it's not about getting some ex footballer to come into some rah rah stories about you know inspiration mm-hmm. and, and stuff. It's, it's about how do we design our workflow and design our, even design our relationships, professionally speaking, within a practice to support each other, to develop each other, develop each other, because all practice leaders want better culture and they want great culture in their practice, don't they? Yeah, Because it's an absolutely. awesome place to be, but, it, but yeah. it's hard to do that. And, and you've got to go inside the work, I think, to, in part, you have good social dues as well, doesn't hurt. 
but, um, <laughs> but, but, but going inside the work itself and creating opportunities to connect with each other and, and, and grow together, that, that's powerful culturally. Yep. Just, just sort of touching a little bit on this evidence discussion. So how do you think as a profession we can sort of find that balance between, you know, because we, we need evidence to continue to grow and develop and to be accepted in, you know, medical model of care, but also being overwhelmed by and not being able to integrate it. I mean, I don't know. How, have you got any thoughts on how to balance well, it? Yeah, well, I, I think that they're different different battles aren't they i think that the medical being accepted by a medical model and, and to be fair i don't know a lot about what the requirements are for us evidence-wise with the medical model because mm. i don't i don't really look into that too much but the customer being um i don't know the medical association or or some sort of the gp or or, or some whoever that customer so to speak uh is quite different to how we execute evidence with a member of the public so mm. um my, 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 I suppose my point with that would be we need to be based on science, absolutely, and research yep. and evidence, 100%. Um, and I'm not suggesting we just say, oh, it works and we're osteos and we should be all trusted because it works. Like, we need to be better than that. Um, I'm saying that in a practical setting where, where, where it, talk, where it uh, influences practice culture and practitioner development, that we need to be careful what science we engage with, what evidence we engage with, because some of it doesn't work and, and in that setting. So... Um, that, that same evidence might work well if you want to convince the president of the AMA that we're really good at X, you know, so that, that, that might be a different scenario. But um, I'm certainly not suggesting that we don't be evidence-based, but we need to be careful mm. that we have alignment between the science and, um, and the commercial viability of it all, as okay. well as the quality of work that we have for practitioners. Okay. And when, when is sort of promotion going to be released and... I mean, do you, are you offering sort of different courses? Is it, can you just yeah. give us a little bit more of a rundown of how it's structured? Yeah, sure. So um, probably now it's, uh, it'll be start of 2022. So there'll be, um, there's workshops uh, that are sort of one-off sort of half day sort of or evening ones that I come into the practices and do stuff live or we can do online as well. Um, so there's ones for practitioner teams uh, and there's one, uh, there's workshops and programs that are programs run over a sort of period of a bit more, few months with online content and stuff uh, and face to face stuff in there as well. Um, that's more for practice leaders. So there's two two streams. One is working with practitioner teams. How do we improve? How do we use the work to improve? Um, you know, the, the workflow for the practitioners themselves, the ability for, for them to support each other and ultimately support high, high perform, sustainable high performance in practice. That's practitioner team stuff. And then there's stuff where the practice leaders come together, Melbourne CBD or face-to-face, you know, uh, -face, like-minded leaders in the room. We go through the design stuff behind the scenes of, okay, how do you create this for your group? And yes, I can come in and do certain workshops with your group as well if you want, but it's a bit different about, you know, this is, this is you guys as leaders. Um, I know you've got these challenges because all practice leaders do, whether they want to engage with me or not, it's a separate question, but they all have these challenges around practitioner development and momentum. So there's those opportunities for practice leaders to come together with like-minded leaders as well. So they're the two sort of streams, the practitioner team stuff, which is almost a competitive advantage thing. I come to your practice and we work with your practitioners. Uh, and as a leader, you'll get that as when you get competitive differentiation from down the road. Um, so there's that. And then there's leaders working together with other like-minded leaders. And there's a number of them in Melbourne that are pretty forward-leaning sort of um, side of things. But I'll be, I'll be a lot more present, social media and, um, 
uh, and, and doing a lot more uh, you know, free content out there because the thing with this stuff, and I know you and I have spoken about it with this podcast, that the challenge of it is, is saying, well, it's a really broad area, isn't it? And it's a mm. really, it's a broad, broad topic. So um, certainly keep an eye out, guys. For all, I'll be across all the place. I'm pretty bad at social media and stuff, but I've got a <laughs> digital marketing agency. I'm getting them to do it. So early in the year, you'll keep an eye out for the promotion stuff because it'll be, it'll be a lot of free video, little short video stuff and blogging stuff to get into people um, what this is about because it is a bit um, broad. But the, the two populations I'm, I'm looking to help are, um, the practitioner teams as well as um, practice leaders in, in those different streams. Yeah. Well, yeah, certainly what you've sort of sent through to me um, has definitely resonated with me. So, right. yeah, right. you can you can feel Good. the squeeze. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and, and look, it is, it's there, and, and but it's, it's I reckon it's a great opportunity too. Like it's, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the anti-squeeze measures we can put in place, they're, they're very, you know, it's, it's all based on solid science and reliable. Yeah. So it's, it's a, the opportunity is there. The squeeze is there. Yeah, but uh, it's an opportunity for so growth, opportunity. isn't it? Yeah, Absolutely. it is. It is. We can do yeah. this. We can do this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Pleasure. It was really fantastic to have, have a chat about a few of these challenges and know that um, I'm not alone in, um, <laughs> in feeling some of them. So, um, No, I don't think we are. We're going to find out soon, though, if I, if I launch in February and, and, there's, and there's crickets. Then um, <laughs> it, it might just be you and me, but I, I sense it's not. I'll um I'll be there definitely. All right, <laughs> good on you. Thank you so much, Grant. Thanks for having me, Emily. The content discussed in each episode is the opinion of the participants only and should not be used as medical advice.